Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you? Uh, I just want to take a second to thank the Whites. Uh, you may not know this, but uh, Rob, our leader, and Stephanie, are, uh, they are married and have two beautiful little kids, one of whom I was racing through the auditorium this morning during rehearsal. It was amazing. Uh, but um, we recently, if you're new with us, first of all, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, but uh, y- y- you may know that uh, our former worship pre- uh, director, Carmel, has moved on to be a teacher. And in her absence, we have been blessed by some amazing people in our church. And so I just want to thank you guys for doing that. That's amazing. Well, uh, as Stephanie mentioned, we are continuing in our series in the book of Acts. And since the beginning of the year... We have been slowly been making our way through this book in the, the New Testament, very important book. It's also a very large book, and uh, even though we've maybe taken a few breaks here and there, and we'll continue to do that, we finally made it to chapter 7, only 21 more chapters to go. Aren't you excited? Yeah. So we have a lot to cover today, and I'm excited about what God has shown me in and through the passage, and so we're going to dive right in. Um, and so if you have your Bible, or if you want to open up your YouVersion app, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now last week, we learned of this person, Stephen, and Stephen was this newly appointed leader in the first church who happened to be accused falsely about speaking against two of the most important symbols in the Jewish religion, the temple and the Torah. Some dudes hired some other dudes to tell lies about Stephen, and it ends in Stephen's eventual arrest. Now, as we turn to chapter 7, starting in verse 1, we're going to hear Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, the high council, The high council was a group of men who were arranged within Jerusalem to sort of keep the peace among the people. They were to make sure that people were adhering to God's law and upholding these symbols of their religion that meant so much to who they were. And if anybody came up against those things, it was their responsibility to make sure that they were set right and that they were sort of held uh, accountable for whatever they were doing or saying. And so now Stephen, falsely accused of saying these things against the temple and the Torah, is standing before the high council. And he's given an opportunity to make his defense to tell them what he is really all about. And this is where we pick it up in verse 1. Now we're going to read verses 1 through 16, so hang with me. Uh, We're going to hear where Stephen starts and what he starts to claim as he stands before the high council. Verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true? Now, I just want to pause there because I want you to notice what Stephen doesn't say. He doesn't say no. He just launches in to tell his story. It reads this, verse 2, this was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. Verse 5, but God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, 
that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. By the way, they are the descendants, right? The high council, all of those living in Jerusalem, they're the descendants of Abraham. Verse 6, God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. We go back to the story of Egypt and the Exodus. Stephen is telling this narrative that started long before he ever stood in the high council. Verse 8, God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nations. Verse 9, these patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came across Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery and our ancestors ran out of food. Verse 12, Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. Verse 15, so Jacob went to Egypt. He died there as, our as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Sheshem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Sheshem. It's a lot. Stephen covers a lot of ground here when it comes to the Old Testament story, the narrative, the story of God. It got me thinking about the fact that 18 and a half years ago, my wife and I stood before our friends and our family and God, and we declared a covenant with each other. We made a vow to one another. We stood before them and declared that we would love and serve each other no matter what may come. Whatever challenges we face, we will remind ourselves of the vows that we made on March 5th, 2004. They will be honored and upheld even in the most difficult of times. That's what we do when we get married. When I officiate weddings, which I get to do occasionally, one of the things that I always say to the bride and groom after they've said their vows is may you put into practice that which you have vowed today. Don't leave these vows here, but take them with you into your everyday life. And the implication is the promises you're making on your wedding day are not to be taken lightly. They're not just words. They're oaths. They're vows they are a covenant. And because of that, they should be more than just words. They should be put into action. Now, I'll be real. On more than one occasion, my wife and I have had to remind ourselves of the vows that we made to each other, her more than me, I'm sure, <laughs> right? Because we aren't just in a relationship. Our marriage isn't just another relationship that we have. We're in a covenant relationship which is an important distinction. And because of that, our bond, my wife and I, it goes far beyond emotions and personal preferences. And you know, that word covenant, 
it's not one that we use very often in our 21st century vernacular. I mean, when was the last time you said the word covenant to one of your friends? Probably not very often. But it's, in my opinion, a word we ought to redeem. We ought to bring back. Because a covenant is something that supersedes any typical relationship you may have. It carries with it a commitment beyond the most basic sort of relationship. I love how one author defines the word covenant. She says it in this way. She says, covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. It's an oath-bound relationship. It's not based on whether I like you. It's not even based necessarily on whether I love you, though that is important, I think. It's an oath-bound relationship. It is committing to one another, to another person, I will be here in a covenant relationship with you no matter what. It is an unbreakable commitment to another person. It is an oath-bound, never-to-be-broken commitment. And I say all this because it's really important for what Stephen is talking about in verses 1 through 16 in chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen defends himself before the high council for these false accusations against him. But what's interesting about Stephen's defense is where he chooses to start. Now, Stephen is a self-proclaimed follower of Jesus. This is kind of what's landed him in hot water to begin with. So you would assume if you're going to make a defense for yourself, you would start there, right? Like start with Jesus. But that's not where Stephen starts. It's not even close to where Stephen starts. Instead, Stephen goes all the way back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis, the very first book of Torah, which is important because one of the accusations against him is that he's teaching against the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but he's not. And so he goes all the way back to Genesis. And he does it to show, one, his knowledge of these books that he's been accused of, and two, that he isn't speaking against the law. He isn't speaking against Genesis or the Torah, but he's actually bringing it to life in a new way because of Jesus. Look, Stephen's defense, as we go through this, is a bit like a pitcher. Stephen is throwing like a fastball high and inside right now so that he can set up the next pitch, which is a curveball low and away, right? He is setting these guys up to be able to kind of lean in and go, okay, I like what you like what you're saying, but eventually he's going to get to the place where that curveball comes in and their minds are going to be blown. That's what Stephen's doing here. He's setting them up. Stephen makes the case that there has been a covenant established in and through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and carries on all the way to this same covenant that is now fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. And he's going to get there, but he starts with the covenant. Here's the deal. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we are told that God created us, men and women, in his image, that we are image bearers of God. We're told in Genesis 1 and 2 that we humans are the pinnacle of God's creation and that we were given life to reflect who he is among his creative work on earth. That that was our original intent. It's, It's still our intent, but it was perfectly in harmony with creation prior to sin's entrance, right? 
But then with the fall, with sin entering humanity, we become a distorted view of who God is. Our image and reflection of God has become distorted. No longer are we the perfect reflection of God on earth as he is in heaven. Sin has caused a catastrophic disruption in his creation. So because of that, we go about doing all of the things that go against who God really is. We steal and we cheat and we kill and we worship other gods and we, we chase after things that we're never intended to chase after. We seek greed. We seek power, which rightly so causes great grief for God. It's not what God wants for us, right? It's causing so much harm to ourselves and to the world around us. So in an act of divine love, which is important to note, in an act of divine love, God puts into motion a plan to set things right again. And so in Genesis chapter 17, God establishes a covenant with Abraham that jumpstarts the story of God's redeeming work on earth. Listen, you know, we're New Testament people, right? The Bible is split into two testaments, and we're New Testament people. We're followers of Jesus. But we cannot understand who Jesus is and what he did on this earth. We cannot understand the New Testament without the Old. You cannot understand the necessity of Jesus without understanding what God did in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so forth. You can't, you have to understand the whole story. And God starts in Genesis chapter 17 with a covenant with a guy named Abraham. And this is what it says in verse 4. He says, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And then in verse 7, God adds it to it with these words to Abraham. Verse 7, it says, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. We just sang about that. Great song choice, Rob. Great song choice. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your, and your descendants after you. This is the everlasting covenant established in Genesis chapter 17. I will always be your God. The Old Testament and the New Testament is a story of God continuously confirming his covenant with the Israelites, an oath-bound commitment to them, unbreakable to God. He has done this out of love, and he confirms it with the ceremony of circumcision. He confirms it with the lives and descendants of Jacob and Joseph. He does it later with Moses in Exodus chapter 20, and he does it with David in 1 Samuel chapter 7. He just continuously confirms this everlasting covenant that I will be your God. In spite of the brokenness of this world, in spite of your sin, I will be your God. That said, the story of God's people isn't always pretty. Because even though God is steadfast in his covenant with his people, well, the Israelites, us, we're not always as committed. I mean, time after time after time after time, God's people abandon that covenant relationship established with them by God. 
They look to other gods. They pursue the things of the world. And though they would experience the consequences of that unfaithfulness, God just, man, is unrelenting in his commitment to them. He remains faithful no matter what. He never wavers. He never lets go of the covenant he established with him. In his love, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to just warn the people of Israel and to call them back to the covenant relationship they have with him. He gives them opportunity after opportunity to turn from their sinful ways, to turn back to him, to come back into relationship with them. And even when other nations come and they take over them and they exile them into the known world, he promises again and again and again to continue his covenant and reestablish his people. Now all this begs the question, why is Stephen facing the high council in Jerusalem? Why is he talking about any of this? Why does Stephen start here with his defense? Well, I, I like how author Whitney Willard says it. She says, to tell the story of God redeeming humanity through Jesus is to tell the whole story of God's covenantal relationship with humans. Again, you... You cannot understand the fullness of Jesus without first understanding the covenant that God established with humanity after the fall. Jesus makes no sense unless you first understand that. Look, Stephen is going to get to Jesus. He is going to get to Jesus. But he knows before I do that, I want those listening to understand that Jesus isn't a separate issue from the original covenant that God established with the Jews and all of humanity. He isn't this separate thing that is sort of just, you know, going up against everything that God has already done in the past. Instead, Stephen wants those listening to know that Jesus is intimately connected with God's original covenant with humanity. Jesus, he's going to make the claim, it's not this separate issue. Instead, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant. Everything that you want to know about God's covenant with humanity, you can now find in the person of Jesus. That story of the Old Testament of God's covenant, man, it is critical if you want to understand all of it being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So why is this so important? Why does it matter that God established a covenant with Abraham in Genesis and has fulfilled it in Jesus 2,000 years ago? Why is Stephen starting here? What is Stephen wanting to do? Stephen is saying to them, and he's saying to us, listen, God never gives up on his people and his promises. The Israelites' story is a cautionary tale. They, they get it wrong so many times. But here's the deal. Stephen has found that the covenant that God established with them so many years ago, he has found that in Jesus, that has been fulfilled. And because of that, he is fully convinced that no matter what happens, God never gives up on his people and his promises. Listen, from the moment that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, 
God has been in constant pursuit of setting things right with humans and his creation. How many of us in here would like to see some things set right in this world? This is God's constant pursuit with us and his creation. He has never steered away from that plan and purpose. And in addition, every single word that God has said in the scriptures, every promise he has made has or will come to pass. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God's word is fully trustworthy because it is rooted in an unbreakable covenant that has been established with Abraham and continues on in the person of Jesus. Stephen is starting here because he wants those listening, the high council in particular, to go, you guys missed it. Have you not read the scriptures? Did you not? I mean, he's sort of like making fun of him, which is going to get him in some hot water later on, right? The end of Stephen's story isn't pretty, but he is, he is making this claim. Look, you guys want me to talk about Jesus, and I'll get to Jesus, but you guys know the story. You know what's happened? You know what God has done? You know his covenant that's gone on for generation to generation to generation? You know the promises he made? And you know that God has never given up on his people or his promises. And you know the promises that God makes about this Messiah guy and books like Isaiah and Zechariah? Well, he came. He's here because God's covenant never breaks. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33 the prophet, God, well, the God talks about Jesus. <laughs> he talks about the renewal of this covenant that's coming. And you would think that the high council would be like, oh yeah, I remember reading that. Like they're the teachers of religious law, right? They're the supposed experts. But this is what God says in Jeremiah 31 about the covenant that he established with Abraham. He says, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the old one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife. Verse 33, But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That, that renewal of this covenant that Jeremiah spoke of hundreds of years prior to Jesus, Stephen is saying, don't you guys know this? This is, this is the story of God. This is who God is is. And, and that same covenant, I want you to hear this today as 21st century citizens of this world, that same covenant that started with Abraham and went on to Jesus and has been renewed in Jesus and brought new life to this world, well, guess what? It's still alive and well. God is still in a covenant relationship with you. That's the good news. <laughs> Jesus came to this earth and he lived among us to say, he's still pursuing you. He still loves you. He still wants a new relationship with you. Come and follow me, he says. I'll show you the way. I'll show you the way back to God. I know that you've walked away. I know that you've made mistakes. I know that you've sinned against him. But listen, he has not stopped pursuing you. Come follow me. 
It's good news. This is the good news of the gospel. People talk about, well, what is really the good news? This is it. That God's covenant is still alive and well, and it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And when we step in line with him, we are inheriting all of the benefits that come with who God is and what he has done in this world. Listen, gosh. I'm spilling my water everywhere. I can only imagine, listen, I can only imagine what you have brought with you to this room today. Some of you have a fear of the future. You are not sure what's coming next. You're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling in a relationship. You're constantly questioning your worth. You're wondering what's going to come of, become of your kids or your grandkids. You've got nerves about a diagnosis or a procedure coming up. You're are facing financial woes, and you, you, you know, not to mention the shaky ground that we stand on and the political, economic, and global status of our world. But can I submit to you this morning that, that God is no stranger to whatever you're facing, that God is no stranger to your ups and downs, your peaks and your valleys. For thousands and thousands of years, God has painfully watched all of us, humanity, walk through the difficulty of a broken world. But in his love, he has never given up on the covenant he established to be our God and for us to be his people. And so much did he love and desire a relationship with us that he sent Jesus to come and to fulfill every promise he has ever made on our behalf. And it's in him that we find forgiveness for our sin, that we find healing from our shame in our past, that we find a new relationship with our creator. It's in Jesus that we're given new life and new purpose for the future. It's in Jesus that everything God promised has been fulfilled. He is our God and we are his people. And when we step in line with Jesus, when we begin to follow him, we recognize the truth that God never gives up on his people and his promises. He never does it. Even in the darkest moments, even in the darkest moments of the Israel's history in the Old Testament, God is still pursuing him, still persuading them, still living up to his promises for them. And even in the darkest moments of, our, of the early church, and Stephen can attest to this, he was one of them, God is still faithful in his covenant to his people, now fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Here's what I want you to know individually today. And I know this both from my study of scripture and personal experience in my life. God will never give up on you. And God will never give up on his promises for you. It is outside of his entire character to do that. He can't do it. Even if he wanted to, which he wouldn't, because it's not in his character, he couldn't do it. Why? Because he has established a covenant with you, an oath with you, a vow to never leave your side, to always pursue you. And then he sent Jesus to prove it, to put flesh to what he's promised. 
Jesus came to make sure you know God will never give up on you and his promises for you. He came to live the life you couldn't live on your own, perfect in every way. He came to die the spiritual and physical death for you, to go to the cross, to give you forgiveness and make you right with God. He rose again three days later to defeat death so that it would have no power over your life. And he ascended into heaven after being with hundreds of his first followers, so that we would be sure of the promise that one day he would come again and set this world completely right. Now listen, what God started with Abraham, it is still happening in the person of Jesus. And the Bible invites us to just say yes to it. Yes. That is my destiny. That is my future. That is my hope. That when we hear the call of Jesus, by the way, some of you know I have a tattoo. And uh, yeah, it's cool, right, Jane? Um, the word is a Greek word. It's akalutheo. It's the word that Jesus uses when he calls his disciples and says, follow me. And every day I'm reading my Bible and I happen to see that. I remember, oh yeah, I'm saying yes to that covenant again today. I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus because he will never give up on me. You know, everything in this world at some point, it's going to break. The only thing that will stand the test of time is God's covenant to us in the person of Jesus. Stephen's future is on the line in Acts chapter 7. He knows it. And spoiler alert, it will not end as one would hope. But Stephen knows that no matter what may come, the covenant God established with his people in Abraham is now fulfilled in Jesus. And now because he knows that, he can't escape it. He can't, he can't turn away from it. I mean, I guess it's possible that he could have gone to the high council and been like, listen, sorry, I didn't mean to you know, create a dust up or anything like that. Mom's the word, won't say anything about Jesus. He can't do it. He can't do it because of what he has found that in Jesus, everything that God has said and done has been fulfilled. And because of that, nothing will stand in the way of Stephen telling people about this story that God has been writing for thousands and thousands of years, for generation after generation, that nothing will stand in the way of God's faithfulness to his people and his promises. And so my question is, will you place your faith in that today? You're going to put your faith in a lot of things. You're going to go and you're going to get in a car. And you're going to put your faith in the manufacturer who made that car. Right? And hopefully you bought a good car for all our sake. But here's the thing. When it comes to faith, our faith, there is no better place for the abundance of our faith than in the person of Jesus because it's in him that everything that God has done and everything that God has said has been fulfilled? Will you lean into the covenant that God has established with you, surrendering your life to Jesus, who's saying, come follow me? And all we have to do is say, I'm in. I'm in. The Bible says that when we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that he is who he says he is, he saves us. That he brings us from death to life. That he gives us a new purpose that that covenant that God made with the Israelites so many years prior is now not just fulfilled in Jesus, but it's actually fulfilled in 
me. That he calls us now to be people who go into the world telling and exampling that same covenant to those in this world. Will you place your faith in that today? All you got to do is say yes. That's all you got to do. Jesus says, Akalethu Theo, come follow me. And all we have to do is say yes this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, I am just so grateful this morning. I am just so grateful that in spite of even my own insufficiencies and inferiorities and sin and just stupidity, that you never give up on me. You have never given up on any person in this room, in our community, in our city, in our state, in our nation, in our world. The beauty of your story, God, of you establishing that covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And the story we read of the fact that despite the ways in which we just sort of turn our back on you time and time again, you continue to pursue us. So much so that in your great love for us, you would send your own son to fulfill everything that you have done and promised. That we would be invited into a new relationship with you through him and that through him we would find new life. That we would be givers of new life in a world that desperately needs it. We hold on to the promise that you never give up on us or your promises. We thank you most of all for Jesus who is our firm foundation upon whom we stand, who will never falter, who will never break. No matter what may come to this world, we are assured that your covenant will stand true and the test of time in him. It's in your name we pray. Amen.